0: The information and opinions presented in this Arc Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes.
1: This is the Arc Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest.
0: And I'm Peter Trizaki and welcome back. Well, it was a great summer, wasn't it?
1: It was, and without all those restrictions that we've lived with for the last few yeah. summers, it was it was really
0: nice. It was really amazing getting outside. The weather was really nice. No smoke, any of that stuff. Yeah. And uh, for solar energy production, it was pretty good too, wasn't it?
1: It was, yeah. And solar's going to continue to be bigger and bigger, I think, not only in Canada, but in the U.S., especially with this new legislation that's been introduced in the United States, and we'll talk more about that.
0: Right, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is kind of an odd name, but that's a whole separate story. Really, it's very much about the encouragement of green energy systems, technologies, and a real boon, I think, for solar and wind.
1: Yes, for sure. And I saw you had a new energy file card about solar. I did. Tell us about that. I
0: did, yeah. And so I made a few comments on it. So it's a stylized photo that I I stylized myself uh, on Photoshop turned it into a little bit of pop art. So take a look at that. Really, it's a a commentary on solar farms because while solar energy is being encouraged, there's also sort of this debate about the sacrificing of arable land, farming land to put up solar farms and sort of farming, I guess, harvesting the sun as opposed to harvesting the land. And so I think that that's something that uh, we're seeing here in Alberta already. We're one of the leading, I think we are the leading province for renewable energy, but it does come at the sacrifice of arable land.
1: Yeah, most of the big utility scale ones in Alberta are mm-hmm. going into good areas that have good farming land, and then yeah. you're taking away that farming land. Now, the proponents, and we did have Dan from um, Green Gate Power say, mm-hmm. you know, it's still a very small fraction of all the farmable land, yeah. but, but as it gets larger, I think it becomes yeah. a larger issue. As, as
0: it gets larger and larger, because the energy density of solar is quite low. In other words, you don't generate a lot of energy per square acre as compared to, say, an acre for a natural gas-fired power plant. So, you know, there's trade-offs with everything. We've said that many times in this show, is that nothing in the world of energy comes for free. And I think that's going to be something to watch. But let's talk about that Inflation Reduction Act that was in the U.S.
1: Okay. Well, I will, by the way, put a link to that Energy File card sure. with your yeah. pop art on it so yeah. people can check it mm-hmm. out. But in terms of what we want to talk today, we'll talk about the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. It's being called the IRA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we might refer to it as that as well. I also want to talk about the low prices for gas in Western Canada this right. summer. The last few weeks, we've had Western Canadian gas trading near zero when uh, the rest of North America is like $9 for gas. And as you know, over in Europe, they're like $50 mm. plus. So yeah. Talk about why that is, and then we wanted to finish with so debating some news articles. Okay, we, let's we do had it. some good feedback mm-hmm. on that from the first time we did it. So let's talk about the Inflation Reduction Act (IRA). So it really was a surprise this summer. Most people had really given up on the U.S. passing any material bill for climate, and it was because Joe Manchin, this Democratic senator, was opposed to a lot of the previous bills, but he agreed to support this one, and um, it has now passed into law, and it includes an estimated $369 billion on climate energy provisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some are calling this the most impactful climate legislation in the United States mm-hmm.
0: ever. Yeah, I know there's modelers like at Princeton University that are suggesting that the impact of this bill will see a 40% reduction of GHGs by 2030. Now, you know, there's a lot of Others that are saying, yeah, everything has to go right for those sorts of numbers to be achieved. And I would agree with that line of thinking because there's a lot of issues in terms of supply chain and getting uh, things. But there's no question that spending, what is it, 373 or $369 billion or something like that on this is going to have a material impact on the build out of infrastructure, including solar farms and things like that that we talked about.
1: Yeah. And we'll go over a few of them. I mean, it's a 700 page uh, mm-hmm. f- piece of legislation, so we're not going to be able to no. do it all. But I think the most interesting and maybe the biggest change, however, is the incentives for manufacturing domestically. So today, a lot of the world is relying on China for batteries, for solar panels. And mm-hmm. even though they've done things to try to move more away from from China, ultimately, even for solar panels, most of the original components mm-hmm. of, are, are made there. Yeah, I think,
0: you know, I think this is an important point because, you know, it's called the Inflation Reduction Act. It's also underneath that billed as the Climate Change Act or something like that. But really, I think there's a lot more geopolitical act in this thing, which is trying to repatriate global supply chains. In other words, a deglobalization and repatriation of manufacturing back to the United States.
1: Yeah, and it is a big deal. I mean, they're giving money, substantial amount of money for each unit of battery cells made, each unit of critical minerals produced, mm-hmm. each cell for solar panels produced that can really increase the margins. And you have yeah. visibility for that into the 2030s. That's a, a pretty big incentive. And so I do think it will um, add manufacturing. Now, one caveat is it takes a while to build these plants and there is a time frame associated sure. with these subsidies. And so maybe... Maybe it all can't be done in, in enough time to take advantage of But it will be material. But, I mean, I think yeah.
0: we can maybe call it the Build and Buy American Act and bringing renewable energy and clean energy technologies back to the United States from places like China. So how does this affect Canada, though?
1: Well, you know, there is some positive for Canada. For example, the EV incentives will, they're a little bit different in that they will only provide the incentive if you buy a car in the U.S., that has components in it. Part of the incentive has to be linked to the components of the battery and the minerals of the battery need to come from either the United States or free trade partners. So Canada can benefit from that. Mm -hmm. Also the manufacture of the car, you know, has to happen in North America. So the incentives for EVs are going to be helpful for Canada. But when it comes to building, you know, big Mm -hmm. factories to build solar panels or batteries, there isn't a really a lot of benefit for Canada. I think if I was a company operating in North America, I'd build my manufacturing capacity in the U.S. because you get those subsidies for each unit Mm -hmm. you produce, and you're not going to get that in Canada. So I do think it's something Canadian politicians need to look at because uh, I don't see a lot of investment in some of these components happening Mm -hmm. in Canada while these incentives exist. Right,
0: right. Well, we are very rich in those critical minerals for batteries, and I know that there's a big push on to try and get those minerals going, I'll call it. But, you know, I haven't seen the momentum of a bill like this and the free trade partner involvement in this bill really come back to any sense of excitement in the mining sector. The stocks are still pretty flat from what I can see, and there's there actually been, are some few articles written on that as well. We'll see how it cuts through the American economy and then by association the free trade partners like Canada.
1: Yeah, Yeah, the incentives are a little less direct for Canada, but they are there. Mm-hmm. We'll talk a little bit, you know, in terms of where... What's this going to do in terms of the generation capacity in the U.S.? That's worth talking about. So you Mm -hmm. talked about wind and solar. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do have tax credits already. And the idea is they're going to extend those, uh, but even Mm -hmm. make them higher in some cases. So there could be an investment tax credit as high as 50%. Mm -hmm. So similar to what Canadian government was offering on carbon capture storage. Now, you only get that if you uh, have enough domestic content or if you're in certain communities, the typical one would be 30%. Mm percent Or you could also take a production tax credit, which is basically a, a credit for each unit of power you generate. So mm-hmm. this is a little different than it was before in that it's opening up the production tax credit, which most people say is, is probably a bit of a better deal. So they're making that more available. It's also easier to get money for these credits. So in the past, to get the credits, only an equity partner mm-hmm. of the project could get credits. Now they're making it more open that you can sell those to others. And mm-hmm. I think that's a big deal because unfortunately the way it was set up, only a few parties were, you know, able to be an equity partner with you. And sometimes they would take a big part of the gain. Right. And so I think this is going to make these incentives much more impactful.
0: So um, you're using the you know the words credits, incentives. And there's no question there's a lot of, I'll call them carrots in this bill. Right. And whenever a country offers all sorts of incentives and carrots It creates a distorted competitive landscape. In other words, other countries have to keep up with those sorts of carrots. Otherwise, industry migrates to the place with the most carrots, right? And so the question is, yeah, we're a free trade partner here in Canada, but we have a lot of sticks and carrots here. So how do, how do you sort of net out the sticks and carrots? Because, you know, there's very few sticks... I'll call it in, or like, which is the the methane one?
1: Yeah, we'll talk about the methane. That's literally the only stick. The rest of these are all incentives. Mm -hmm. Well, Canada has talked about putting in a tax credit for zero emission technologies. We're going to find out more about that in the fall update, but I think that's even more important. And I think we need to look towards Mm -hmm. the U.S. and make sure that our incentives are similar. I think that's urgent Mm -hmm. um, because as you say, you know, investors can put their projects in the U.S., Canada. And if they get a better return in the US, Mm -hmm. they're probably going to do that. So I think that is a really important thing for Canadian competitiveness. The other thing that's new is these tax credits are being opened up for much broader technologies. Before, there was a narrow set of technologies, wind, solar, and a few other things. Now, it's it's more all zero emission technologies that can generate power. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that Canada already talked about that's new here.
0: Right. Finally, I don't think there was any real sticks on the oil and gas industry in the United States. In fact, there was a lot of environmental groups that were fairly upset that, yes, while we're encouraging clean energy technologies, it really wasn't really deterring the oil and gas part of the energy economy.
1: Right. They don't have a carbon tax. There was really no financial incentive Mm -hmm. for them to reduce their emissions. So for the first time, there is a financial incentive around methane, so they're talking about charging $1,000 a ton for methane leaking starting in 2024. A now that thousand. sounds yeah, that yeah. sounds like a huge number, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, but, it is. <laughs> but I, I think it, it's because we don't usually talk about it in terms of tons. If you actually convert that to the CO2 equivalent using a global warming factor of 25, that's the equivalent of about $50 a ton for CO2. Mm-hmm. So that just gives you a sense of, of that number. It's a reasonable number. And there's many things you can do around methane to reduce your emissions for that type of incentive, because methane emissions tend to be some of the lower cost things to... At the wellhead, at the wellhead.
0: There's a lot of methane leakage in antiquated pipes in the distribution and local distribution systems, because the use of natural gas and prior to that coal gas goes back over 100 years. So there's some really old pipes and things that leak, and I think it's... Also, you know, that's the more expensive side of it is. mitigating methane emissions.
1: I mean, the real question with these types of policies is how do you know how much is leaking and how do you charge a tax? Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's a lot of complications, right. but assuming they are going to be able to right. monitor everywhere, I guess that would ha- also have to be reduced. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are things too, areas where it is more expensive than that. You might be willing to just pay the fee because right. it's, you know, there are areas, specific areas where reducing methane is more expensive, but there's a lot of methane that can be reduced. Right. At that kind of price range. I did want to quickly mention carbon capture storage as well. There were some new incentives for that. They're offering $85 a ton US for sequestering carbon for 12 years. So basically guaranteeing a price for 12 years. And if you want to do direct air capture, they'll uh, guarantee a price for $180 a ton. And this is if you're just going to sequester, if if you're going to use it, it, it is a, so a lower the, that's price. So
0: basically, the latter is basically sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere. And then sequestering it.
1: Yes. Yeah. So I'm really interested in this. Uh, First of all, you know, Canada, as you know, we have our tax incentive for CCS as well. It's it's a bit different. It's on the initial capital that you spend. But we have uncertainty around carbon price. So in some ways, this is stronger than Canada because it tells the developer, I have 12 years of guaranteed income and there's no policy uncertainty associated with that. And uh, even though maybe the ultimate price might end up being a bit lower than what Canada might get to, mm. it, it gets rid of that uncertainty. So I do expect we're going to see a fair amount of investment. So it's no policy uncertainty.
0: CCS. I'm always a little bit defensive when I hear no policy uncertainty, but what do you mean? Because it's actually contracted.
1: It's contracted that for 12 years you're going to get that price.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I think it would be hard to, uh, who knows, I'm not an expert or a lawyer, but now that this is in legislation, And when these contracts go forward, I think most people view them as pretty certain.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we've been talking quite a bit about methane natural gas. So why don't we segue into Western Canadian gas prices?
1: Okay. So as I introduced at the beginning, well, North American prices have been around $9 per MMBTU the last few weeks of August. Western Canadian gas prices have been low at times, pricing near zero. And, uh, you know, this is not new. We've had this pattern. It's kind of an unfortunate pattern since 2017, where in the summer, we've had low prices for our Canadian gas. It's always been painful, but I think it's even more painful when the rest mm-hmm. of the world is getting paid so much. For so let's back up gas. a minute
0: for, for, for the audience, because the whole gas market is a continental grid. And just for the understanding, there's a series of major hubs where the pipelines gather, and that's where the gas is traded much like where the food is traded at a farmer's market, right? You, you bring all the food to a market and you sell it there. So the hub in Alberta, the main hub is called ACO, which is in southeastern Alberta. And at that hub, we've got extremely low prices because there is an oversupply of the natural gas and insufficient takeaway capacity. Whereas all these other hubs around North America, whether it's in Ontario, Chicago, Or down in Louisiana, where the Big Henry Hub is, they're trading at nine bucks US. And here it's three bucks Canadian.
1: Or even lower. I mean, many times in the last few weeks,
0: it's been lower than that. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So, why is it so low?
1: Okay. Well, what's been happening is that there's some maintenance work that's going on that's limiting how much capacity exists in the Western Canadian gas system. And this is mostly on the NGTL system that we've talked about that TC Energy operates. But there's other systems as well that have done maintenance work. And what that's meant that is there's just less capacity to move the gas out. Why this impacts price is starting in 2017, TC Energy implemented a policy that when they were not having enough capacity to move all the gas on the system that was contracted, they would cut the spot service, so the non-firm service. And by doing that, it means there's, there's more gas on the system than there's capacity to move it. And what, what it happens is the price collapses and through that people start to reduce their production. Right. So it used to be prior to 2017, the operator would say, you know what, we are doing maintenance work. Everyone needs to cut their production like 3%. And they would send out a notice that, you know, even though you have firm contracts that let you flow a certain amount, you're going to be flowing, you know, 97% of that because of this work. Mm-hmm. And the eco price would stay high. But what has happened now is they don't tell people to stop flowing. They stop the gas leaving at the export points or getting into storage. Mm -hmm. And what that does is cause an oversupply, which causes the price to come down. And then producers will voluntarily cut their production. Well,
0: you know, this is all very complicated, actually. So I'm, I'm trying to think about an analogy in this farmer market sense to give some clarity to this. Like, I mean, the farmer market is pretty efficient. There's all these stalls and the vendors are selling at normal price, but then there's all these vendors that are trying to get into the market, into the building, and they can't, right? And so they are forced to sell at the doors at very low prices. And meanwhile, everybody in the building is selling at high prices because they have a contract with the building owner to be able to sell. Yeah, that's one of their differences, actually. It's a good point. So I think that you know, it's not like everybody is getting the low price. It's the people that are trying to get into the building and sell their food. And
1: exactly. Again, so, by so analogy, the people- <laughs>
0: you know, their gas. So, yeah, so go ahead. <laughs>
1: yeah, so the the people that have to sell at the ACO have to sell at the low price because there's too much of their product. Right. But there are people that actually have contracts on the export pipelines right. who are able to get the gas out of Alberta and sell, you know, at, at the higher prices right. in the rest right. of North America. So the people that own the contracts on those export pipelines, they're not being impacted by this because uh, they're able to sell the high prices, the ones that have to sell in Alberta. What's happening
0: is if you have a stall inside the market, you're basically going to the front door, buying really cheaply off someone who can't get into the market. Then you're going back into the building and selling it for nine. So it's a situation where the people that are inside the building that have firm contracts to have a stall to sell Are typically big companies and typically traders and third parties who have the money to be able to have a stall. So anyone who's trying to sell and typically it's smaller companies and others that are hostage to all the people that are in the building.
1: Yeah, they're getting hurt by this. They were much better prior to 2017 when we just curtailed production and price stayed high. Now we're causing the price to crash and those that don't have access to the export lines are having to pay the price and sell their gas so very cheaply. So, you know,
0: if I'm, if I'm observing this, say, well, okay, that's just the way the market works. Too bad, so sad. You know, eventually uh, they'll build a bigger building and allow more people in, which is what's happening, right? Like, they're going to build more pipes.
1: Well, that is true. That A lot of this maintenance work is because of a project that we've been long awaited called the NGTL 2021 expansion, and here we are mm-hmm. in 2022, still waiting for it. But the idea is that this is going to add some additional capacity by the uh, October November timeframe, and then a bit more early next year, and once that's done, it you know that should help. However, I would say in next summer, even with that additional capacity, because our production in Western Canada of gas has increased, mm-hmm. I actually predict that we're going to see this volatility again in right. summers because there's always maintenance work, and the production level I think will be at a point where when capacity is removed from the system, it's going to cause this pricing right. situation. I will say, you know, who loses the small producers? I also want to talk about the Alberta government. In the month of August, you know, it's been a very low price here. And so the royalties to Alberta will be much lower than if TC Energy used the old policy like they did in 2017 where they just curtailed production mm-hmm. because that really affects the Alberta government's income. So they're, they're another group that has to see this low price. And there's one other thing too, uh, Martin King, who's who's been a long time mm-hmm. analyst of Western Canadian yeah. energy markets. He had a quote in the Daily Ola Bulletin last week, estimating that in August, this discount was conservatively costing the Alberta producers north of a billion dollars. I guess the, this is all a very complicated topic. It's a very contentious issue. We've actually talked about it a number of times on the podcast mm-hmm. uh, because it's happened you know, since the summer of 2017 when this policy was changed. I still think the solution would be that we we go back and there was a couple of hearings that already happened with the Canadian Energy Regulator on this topic mm-hmm. to look at how we deal with maintenance work in the summer. Uh, this is a reminder of how painful it really is. And, and I hope that all those parties get back to looking at solutions to create more stability to the price in the summer months.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Well, let's get on to our debating the news. We'll have two quick articles here. The first one is an August 25th article from CBC saying chemical engineer questions Dune hydrogen plan. And uh, just for context, mm. I'm sure all of, many of you saw that Canada and Germany announced a plan to send green hydrogen from Newfoundland and Labrador to Germany. That was a lot of news mm-hmm. last week with the visit. Now, this engineer is talking about the Port of Dune project in New Brunswick, uh, which also signed an MOU with Germany to deliver hydrogen, green hydrogen, by 2027. And he argues that this is a step backwards in terms of energy, and by the time you get to the other end, you paid for 10 units of energy, but only get back two.
0: Yeah, I'm glad the engineer brought this up because this is a big issue in terms of efficiency. Basically, he's saying, you know, of 100 joules at the front end of energy, only about 20 make it to Germany. And so 80, net 80 joules are lost or 80% of the energy is lost. It's a very inefficient system. And that implies the economics become much more challenging. In other words, how do you make money when you lose so much along the way? Now, there are plenty of precedents of inefficient energy systems, including the one we're very familiar with, which is a barrel of oil being refined to gasoline and then ultimately burned in an engine to turn the wheels of a vehicle. That's probably 85% losses or more. However, a barrel of oil has a tremendous amount of energy. So the economics go round, if you pardon the pun. In the hydrogen world, I'm skeptical, to be honest with you, that we're going to be able to make hydrogen halfway around the world, ship it across the Atlantic in an ammonia tanker and do all the things we need to do and make it economically viable. So in theory, it makes sense in practice and in terms of making money, um, with the engineer I'm not convinced.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you lose energy because each time you convert it to something else, you lose more energy. Yeah. Uh, now, this would make you think, well, domestic production in Germany would make a lot more sense, but they may have issues, like they may not have enough water or the price of electricity may be really high. So I guess in a jurisdiction with lots of water, with very cheap electricity, maybe it could overcome that. But um, I agree. It, it I, questions. I, it, it's a big question mark in terms of will it ultimately be economic? I,
0: I'm, I'm very skeptical that hydrogen is going to be economically viable in tankers, however it's transported in those tankers around the world.
1: Let's go to our second article, Late July, The Yard. Not a very popular publication, but one that made a lot of news because they shamed stars for their Mm. CO2 from flying their planes. And it listed a number of pop stars and musicians. And the one with the highest carbon Mm. footprint was Taylor Swift at 8,293 tons, or almost 1,200 times the average person. And they had other stars as well, like Jay-Z, Kim Kardashian, Blake Shelton, who made the the top list. And so Taylor came under a lot of pressure on social media, and uh, her spokesperson said this was incorrect because she regularly loans out her plane to other individuals, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so therefore that isn't just her carbon footprint. That was her response to that.
0: Mm-hmm. But you
1: know, you're know, you seeing more and more examples of this where people that have the high carbon footprints are being uh, called out.
0: Yeah, like Bill Gates and others.
1: Yeah, and Bill Gates actually addressed that in his book, that he recognized he had a very high carbon footprint, and he actually agreed to start using sustainable jet fuel in 2020. And in 2021, he committed to offsetting all of his emissions from aviation to address this problem. And, you know, Bill is a little different because he is out there saying, I mean, he wrote a book called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. So I think he has to do something. Some of these other stars, you know, yeah, have made big I, this
0: just opens up a huge subject area of leading by example and what you need to do. If it's a real climate disaster, arguably you should be parking your jet and making more Zoom calls, including Bill Gates. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I think the you, you can divide it into a number of boxes. The one box I would call hypocrisy are not only pop stars that fly around in private jets, but also moralize about climate change and do nothing. You don't have to be a pop star. You bring that all the way down to broad society. And people who get on a stage and talk about climate change, climate emergency, but then go home and uh, take vacations and drive the big SUV and so on. It's a little bit like someone who's a vegetarian talking about vegetarianism and going home, putting a steak on the barbecue. Like, you can't do that, right? So, it's just, uh, this this whole thing brings up uh, a whole bunch of issues that actually I would like to talk about more on a subsequent podcast, but... Bo, our producer here at Ear Candy Studios, points out that rock stars take buses, but pop stars fly around in pirate jets. So So maybe
1: they need to start taking more buses, reduce their carbon footprint.
0: Or having a Zoom concert. Who knows?
1: Okay. Well, with that, we will wrap it up for uh, this wrap up to summer. I hope you enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.